Hey folks, welcome to the Mountain and Marsh Podcast, an outdoor-driven podcast where we also go in on and talk shit about pretty much anything. Hope you enjoy. Also, if you enjoy this custom music, this was produced by Stephen Mathias Music. Find Steve on his website, www.stephenmathiasmusic.com. This podcast is brought to you by Ward Business Group, Central Maryland's premier construction management and general contracting company. They are licensed and insured and provide a full range of services and products. Their services include, but are not limited to, lawn and landscape, excavation and land clearing, welding and custom fabrication, and snow removal. They also have products for sale, such as sand, stone, mulch, and firewood. Ward Business Group serves Central Maryland and the surrounding areas. Ward Business Group is an affiliate of Invisible Fence brand of Carroll County and Invisible Fence brand of Delmarva. Check them out on Facebook via their website, or you can contact Justin Ward with any inquiries at 410-984-4020. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Josh Barfield of Invasive Lures. Uh, Josh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody. Kind of tell everybody where you're from, who you are, and what you do. All right. Sounds good. Like you said, I'm Josh Barfield. I own Invasive Lures. Um, it's a lure company. We basically take the same ideas of a lot of freshwater fishing lures, but you make sure they're kind of strong enough to handle the tough snakeheads, big pike, musky, stuff like that. So it's just a try and give people a upgraded version of things that you would find in any normal tackle shop right uh right now i'm living in severn working pretty much out of my house it's kind of like a like a side business type deal but it's, it's been taking off pretty well so hopefully we'll be able to convert this into something a little more full-time soon yeah it's kind of like podcasting you tell people you do podcasts and they ask how much money you make and you're like what do you mean money but anyway yeah, they, yeah right yeah yeah um so how did you get starting? I, I wanted to go the fishing route, but I mean, just the outdoors, uh, when, you know, when you were younger, what kind of drew you into the outdoors and led you to do what you do now? Uh, basically my dad, I remember probably since I was two or three years old, my dad would take me out and try and catch a bluegill somewhere. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's a big outdoorsman. He taught me almost everything i know i've got some tricks now and i i put them on some snakeheads this weekend that was his first time getting on them so i can teach him a thing or two finally when did the snakehead thing start for you i I know it's been a big deal in maryland the last i couldn't even tell you maybe five ten years when did it start for you um probably a couple years ago i was talking to my buddy and uh kind of business partner nate he helps me pour the lead and uh, gets all the jig heads ready and, and polished up so I can paint them. But uh, we were sitting in his garage drinking beer like normal people do. And he was saying that his friend uh, caught some snakeheads. And I was like, what the heck is that thing? 
And because I had moved here from Florida at the time and I've never seen that before. And he was like, apparently they taste really good and they're good to eat. Well, we're going to have to find out about that one. So I started researching and looking at every YouTube video that they make and how to catch snakeheads and got some stuff together and went out there. Took me a couple, uh, couple of tries to figure out where they like to ambush at. But after I caught a couple of them and fried them up, I was like, yeah, we're not going back to bass fishing. In your opinion, what has driven this big snakehead push? Because from the outside in, as someone who grew up catfishing, smallmouth, largemouth, and saltwater fishing, kind of in between all of that is this snakehead fishing that's it's blown up to the point where it seems like everybody I meet in the fishing world now is a huge fan of snakehead fishing. So, I mean, how did this thing really get to blossom like this? Well, I believe that there's two sides of this. So one is, you know, everybody knows the story of the Crofton Pond where they caught snakeheads at first, and then the media talked them up, talked a huge game about them, saying they're frankenfish, and they'll get out of the water and eat your dog and your small children and all kinds of nonsense, right? But <laughs> yeah. because everybody wanted to talk about it and it became a talking point, then obviously it's like one of those urban legend things. Like the more people talk about it, the more it spreads. But then the people who... We're like, well, let's go catch one of these things and, and find out about it. And the people that started doing a lot more, you know, biological surveys, research, the DNR uh, has been pretty good about tracking, maintaining, and, and looking of like over the last six years, especially, they put out a lot of actual data, right, to kind of combat the whole Frankenfish type mentality. But the people that go out there that are, you know, everyday fishermen catching bass and stuff, they run into them, um, you know, just because they're there. And they eat the same type of lures that best would eat. Uh, you know, they're predator fish. They ambush. They're top water. I mean, they're fun to catch. So that's kind of the, the opposite side of it where they were just there all of a sudden. And then they started being more and more common. And they turned into kind of a sports fish just because of how aggressive they are. I have a good buddy who actually fishes a lot of bass tournaments. And he started catching them. I remember, this is maybe between five and ten years ago, I remember him talking about how the DNR, uh, when he would he would throw a bait a thousand times a day on these bass tournaments in the upper bay and uh, on the flat, the Susquehanna Flats, and he would, he would catch these things, no matter what size, he would catch these things, and the rule was you caught them, you brought them in the boat, you stabbed them in the head and tossed them back over, or you kept them and ate them. But you did not throw that fish back in live. And so he killed a bunch of them before he ever really understood. I mean, yeah, he, he understood the fight, but he was in these largemouth bass tournaments and smallmouth bass tournaments and was catching them and would just tell us about, Hey, yeah, I caught like two this past time I went out. And at, at the time I kind of would just brushed it off as it was a nuisance because DNR had told everyone, make sure you kill these things or like you said, they'll stand up, walk on their fins, and eat your kids. And all, all of a sudden, I like I start this podcast, and I get more into social media, and I realize, dude, everybody loves catching these things and like slaying them, like top water chatterbaits. Just love working motion on these things, and I'm like, this is it's almost like a better version of a largemouth bass. I, I, that's something that's that's a touchy subject. But it almost seems like it has grown to be a better largemouth bass, if that makes any sense. It's like a largemouth bass that you want to eat. Yeah. It, it, yeah. 
Table fare is a lot better. I don't recommend eating best. I can tell you that much. But um, I don't know. They they grow faster. Uh, you know, they can grow 10, 11 inches a year. They breed three to five times a year or two to five times, depending on who you ask. But they breed more times than a bass does. So the population skyrockets. And then that was the concerning factor for the DNR. Their mentality is what we've seen with stuff like zebra mussels and the blue cats and stuff like that. Their mentality is immediately like, okay, there's something new here that's not supposed to be here. Get rid of it. So they started telling everybody, you know, you got to, if you catch it, you got to kill them. And there's some moral issues there. Um, and then there's the whole, the government shouldn't be able to tell me what I can and cannot do issue, but I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, if you catch one and you put it back in the same place you got it from, then were you even there? You know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, they, the ones that are about, I keep them there between 23 inches and up. Cause I feel like they've had a couple of chances to breed already. And I feel like that's a little more fair. And I don't harvest any of the fish that are on fry balls because they protect their young. Um, so they have two parents and, you know, 10,000 little minnows around them and they circle around and they eat anything that comes to it. So it's kind of easy. <laughs> you know, if you can get them to bite, if you can see them, they don't get a chance to run away and they're pretty aggressive guarding their fry. So it's a, it's a little bit easier to catch them that time. But. Okay. I'm glad you just brought this up because here recently I have seen many people talking about, fr- I follow a bunch of people on Instagram and Facebook who do this type of fishing just because I'm kind of enamored with it, the, you know, the idea of it. And it, everybody talks about the fry ball, which in like, I guess is just like post spawn there. It's just like you said, the minnows are there or the, or the small baby fish are there just in layman's terms. There's a bunch of baby fish and the, the parental fish are fending off anything else. Is that kind of what the fry ball is? Yeah, so the fry ball is bright orange because the baby snakehead fry look kind of like spotted goldfish, right? Um, so they'll condense them all into a small group so it's easier to guard them. But the fry have to breathe oxygen. So they are, the, the fish in general has to breathe oxygen. Now they can hold their breath longer when they're bigger. But they will come up and surface for air, and that's kind of one of the, the giveaways for we to find a good spot to fish for them. But when they're babies, they have to stay pretty close to the surface to get air all the time, which makes it pretty easy to spot them. And you just see this bright orange ball in the water, and it looks like somebody's boiling a pot of water right in the middle of a lily pad field or something. You know, they're pretty easy to spot. So um, that's the fry ball. Now, I'm not 100% sure on the biology of this, but from what I've read about it, a couple weeks, three weeks, give or take, um, the parents are on the fry balls and protecting them. And then they start to move them to some place where the fry can eat and grow. And that takes the course of another week or so. And then they'll come back out to the main body of water to eat and fill up again, basically, so they can breed again the next following month. Okay, I got you. So there's like time periods in there where they may be more aggressive or less aggressive, depending on what right. they're doing in life, right? It depends on a couple of factors, too. Um, the weather, you know, how windy is it, How, what the structure is, how, how well can they hide. When you have lily pad fields that are, you know, three feet off of the water, it's a lot harder to throw a lure in there. But if there's something 
lot of the west side places they have less foliage and more like grass mats and stuff like that so it's kind of easier to to see them and they'll just sink up and down a little bit to try and get away but they're a lot easier to spot in open water yeah i gotcha um so for table fare obviously these things are a pretty big deal there too um can you kind of explain what they're comparative to to somebody who's never had one or or is there nothing like it um if I were to, we call it chicken of the creek for a reason. Um, it's thick, dense, white, flaky meat. You know, if you didn't know any better, you could probably get away with telling somebody that it's like dark meat chicken. It's kind of got that same consistency to it. But uh, basically, I kind of just replaced chicken in the recipe with snakehead. So you wanted barbecue mac and cheese, you know, then just put snakehead, grill it up, and then put barbecue sauce on it, and it tastes like barbecue sauce. They really, everybody says they taste great. You know, oh, they're so great to eat. They are, but they don't actually have that much of a flavor to them. The smith, the fish smell terrible, but once you cook them, they taste like whatever you season them to. So you kind of have a lot more variety instead of just making nuggets all the time. Yeah, uh, I know that's a that's a big deal with a lot of fish that majority of people eat is they kind of want a, a blander fish, though I enjoy almost all fish. I think that's something that people look for, which makes them, just as you said, a really good table fare because you can kind of put your mind to whatever you want and make it happen with that filet. Is there a lot of meat on these things? Oh, yeah. And that's, that's another reason why I only harvest the ones that are bigger than 23 inches. Uh, you get a lot more meat. So you'll have, if you see pictures of the fish that are, you know, 17 inches to 20 inches or smaller than that. I don't even bother. They look like minnows, but the ones they start getting fatter in the front half. Right. And then they'll, they'll just get more dense muscular wise throughout the rest of their body. But once they start looking more like a football, then it's, they're got a lot more meat packed on them and the fillets come out a lot better. Right on. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into the company a little bit because I'm sure people would right. love to kind of hear how this has all come about. Um, so at, at, to start, let's just tell everybody what you make and the different kinds of lures that you got, that you make. All right. So right now we started out with, um, well, I originally started out wanting to make inline spinners. And then I started making some uh, bladed jigs, we have to say, because there's copyright reasons. But um, there's a certain company that makes the chatterbait. And I kept, I mean, not, nothing wrong against them. They catch fish. But when you catch a fish like this, and it's got big teeth and wraps around your net a bunch of times, then you're paying $5 pretty much every time you want to catch a fish. So I started kind of designing my own. There were the blades wouldn't bend out and it had a better split ring on it so it wouldn't get pulled apart and stuff like that. So we're making inline spinners, a couple of varieties of those, a couple of varieties of bladed jigs, and uh, I got a couple of buzz baits. And I do make a swingtail jig, but uh, I've just kind of been holding off on putting those out again it's more of like a fall like uh, early spring type of lure during the summer months when it's thick veggies everywhere it's kind of hard to work a swim bait like that and uh we kind of talked about a little bit before but when did the idea for the company and uh, when when did it start and kind of where did it come from so yeah i I read a bunch of articles and I've watched a bunch of YouTube videos and they said, you know, the best top three lures that you can use for snakehead or, 
you know, a chatter, an inline spinner, and like a top water lure of some kind. And a lot of people were like, yeah, buzz baits in there too. A lot of people only throw buzz baits. So I um, started going, you know, going and buying all this stuff, fill up the tackle box, getting ready to go out and catch the snakehead. So the first couple ones that I caught, you know, I would catch them on a chatterbait and then I'd have to buy another one. Or I'd catch them on a name brand spinner and I'd have to buy another one because they just destroy your gear. They bend out the hooks, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, this is getting pretty expensive pretty fast. And I'm looking at my buddy Nate and I was like, I think I can make these, make some spinners. So I'll make some for us and we'll test them out and see how they go. So that's what I did. I started making them, researching, you know, wh- where can I get the parts from? What's the best weight? How big of a blade should I get into? And I did a bunch of of testing until I started consecutively catching fish. And I was like, okay, so this must be the right combo. Now, you start talking to other people, other people give you their ideas. Oh, I would like gold blades. Okay, well, I guess I could make some gold blade, try it out, see if that catches fish. So a lot of it was trial and error until I found something that I like to fish. And then people were like, oh, man, you're over here killing it with all these these lures. Where'd you get those? I was like, well, I made them. Oh, will you make me some? I mean, sure, give me five bucks. Okay, great. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. So you make a lure and the, I'll say this because I just interviewed a guy, uh, from blind grass camo systems, uh, that because I duck kind of interview all kinds of people in uh, different realms. And this guy told me that he, he's like, I have a terrible business model. And I was like, why is that? He's like, well, I, I was using things that fell apart and I'd have to rebuy it again. And that was a great business model. He's like, you know what's a, a crappy business model? He's like, making something that that lasts because then people don't come back to you. And it's it sounds and I, and I'm not putting down your company. I'm saying it sounds like you make something that's that's supposed to stand the test of time and not be repurchased. You know, which is not many companies do that anymore. And I kind of commend you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, I try to. Like I said, I, I try and upgrade all the hardware. So instead of a regular wire hook, I at least use a 2X hook. Some of the stuff has a 3X hook. Um, for the wire that I use, like a regular name brand spinner is a 0.021 diameter wire. I use a 0.035. And that doesn't sound like a big difference like numerically, but it's about two sizes bigger. You can still fit the beads on there, and that's why I haven't gone up to a 4. But 4 is like your name brand, like offset spinners, that kind of wire, the, the big stuff. So you don't want too much weight in there. But I started designing all this stuff because I was tired of breaking it. Now, if you throw it in the trees and you lose it, that's on you. If you catch a big 40-pound catfish with it and it bends the hook out, that's not exactly what it was designed for. So that's kind of on you, but I'll still give you another one because that's funny. So, you know what I mean? Like, I was just tired of running around the store and having to pick out a bunch of stuff. So that's why I include a trailer on all of my bladed jigs. Because why do you want to go and spend five, six, sixteen dollars for certain, you know, baits? And then you have to go across the store and pick out a six pack of paddle tails and different colors and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I might as well just give you the stuff that you need. You open up the bag, please recycle, you know, tie your lure on and throw it. And then you're on fish. That's I don't want to be out there messing around trying to build stuff in the boat while I'm going fishing, I want to be able to tie and throw it. So I figured if that's what I want to feel like, then I think the customer would want to feel the same way too. Yeah. I, I like the recycle plug. So the Democrats also buy your fishing lures, but not only that, I, I personally also only catch small fish 
for that reason. I don't want to. I don't want to lose my stuff. No, I'm just joking. But honestly, <laughs> I I think that uh, I think that what you have going on is is such a great idea. It, it's something that here recently, just like the guy I was talking about with the blind grass camo or, or whatever the case is, a lot of people I've talked to recently started businesses because they were just tired of dealing with the BS of normal uh, everyday retail stuff. And it, you know, and it, it drives me to purchase those products more anyway. And I, I think that, I think that that's a better way to be is just be a decent human and make some quality stuff. So that's, that's really cool that you're doing that. How has making lures kind of played a part in the way you fish? Like when you go out fishing now, are are you just taking a tackle box of 10 new things or new setups or whatever that you've created? Um, most of the time when I go out, a lot of it is top water now. And I, I make fishing lures and I do a ton of product testing. I don't sell anything that I don't catch fish on. That's just, why would I do that? It makes no sense. But if I don't go out there and catch fish with it, then I'm not going to sell it to somebody else. So a lot of the stuff that I go out there and throw, I design things for a specific structure. So I'll find the structure that I want to test something out on. Let's say a weedless offset spinner, right? I got one of those that I'm testing out and I want to see how weedless is it? How many times can I throw this into a piling and it's not going to bend out and hook onto something? How many times? So a lot of the times I'm out there fishing and I'm just casting, trying to mess stuff up. And then I'll just get a, a crazy random bite from a fish, you know? So when I go out there and I'm specifically like, okay, I know what to use in the structure. I know what to use as top water lily pads. We're going to do, you know, subsurface uh, bladed jigs over at the dam area. Maybe they're piled up here. I think only structure at this point. The fish are in there. It's just a matter of how can I get a lure in front of them? So when I started making new lures, I design, I find a problem with the structure that I'm fishing. Like if I can't get my regular bladed jigs in there, right? It's probably because the hook is at an angle that it's going to catch the branches and stuff like that. So how can I get this weedless? So then I'll go home and I'll think it up or redesign a mold or something and then go out there and I'll make like 10 or 15 of them and hand them to some of the guys on my pro staff and be like, here you go, put, put some fish on this so that I know that they work because I trust their opinion. Um, but I also go out there and I'll throw specifically new baits for a couple hours until the evening bite hits and then okay it's not from fishing fishing you know so it's just i'm out there playing more often than i am actually fishing do you notice that you gravitate toward one lure that you make like over and over again you're you're getting good bites here good bites there but there's just one lure is there one lure that you kind of gravitate or even if it's just a color or whatever the case or a setup, like whatever the case may be. Is there one thing that you're shooting for? Um, yeah, like I said, it depends on the, the structure. That's what I choose to throw. Like I'll, I'll choose my lures based on what the structure looks like. But for open water, it's going to be the white bladed jig. Either the size blades, doesn't matter. But the white color and sometimes the white and chartreuse, depending on how yellow the water is that day, because it gives it a little bit of a, a contrast and the fish will pick up on it better. That is, for open water and structure that isn't too dense, that's my go-to lure. For a little bit more dense structure and, like, edge lines and things like that, I have an inline spinner. I like to use the silver blade. I just feel like the water is yellow enough that a gold flash isn't really going to make that big of a difference. 
Um, and then I'll put a white or dark green paddle tail on there, like I said, for the contrast. And it just depends on the clarity of the water. But those are my two, if I really need to catch a fish today, lures. I'll find the structure that I can fish them with, and then I'll tie one of those on. I usually keep a topwater option on one rod, and then I keep one of those two on my other rod. So I'll have a subsurface and a top rod or a topwater rod out there on the kayak. And then if we're just floating along and I see something that looks like good structure, then I have to pick up the appropriate, you know, stick to be able to throw and see if there's fish there. I've noticed recently a lot of the the people I follow that fish for snakeheads almost exclusively. I've noticed a huge push in vibrant colored topwater frogs. It I'm I don't I'm not I don't mean any harm by it. I just I feel like a lot of people utilize uh, these top water frogs and don't really utilize much of anything else, like such as chatter baits or spinners or paddle tails or, or whatever the case may be. I, I noticed majority, that's why I really want to talk to you. Cause I was like, man, this guy's doing it with like all different kinds of stuff. And I, I hadn't seen that before. And I, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it depends on, it's, it's more seasonal. So during the very early spring, you can throw a frog out there and probably catch a fish. But it's less likely because they're more lethargic when the, when the water temperature is still low. Now, if you throw a bladed jig or a spinner in front of them and it's moving slow enough, then they'll come out and eat it. Um, I think I caught the first fish this year on March 28th, and it was on a white and red bladed jig. So... I saw people out there with like swim frogs and stuff like that that were catching fish, more subsurface frogs. But once the summertime comes around or the late spring and you got lily pads that are everywhere, it's a lot harder to work those lures. So if you get a weedless option, you can still use that for grass lines. Now, like I said, it depends on a couple of factors. If they're on fry balls and they're way back into the trees, throwing an inline spinner back there is probably not going to be a good idea. But once they come out for the evening to, to eat, along the edge lines of things because every fish is kind of edge oriented. You just got to find the, the structure for them. And then you throw your spinner or something like that across uh, open water and they'll come out and get it more often in my experience than they will if you throw a big loud frog or something on top. Don't get me wrong, buzz baits work. Top water frogs, they work. But getting lower and more in their face because they're ambush predators has been better for me. Um, that might not be the case for everybody. I know people that go out there and they only throw buzz baits. And I'm like, don't worry, I'll make you a buzz bait. I know people that only throw topwater frogs after the month of April. So I, it is self personal preference. As far as the colors go, I kind of think the snakeheads are colorblind. And I'm saying that, and that's purely opinion. I have no fact to back that up other than I've gone out there and I've thrown a white frog. I've gone out there and thrown a pink frog. I've thrown a purple and blue with two blades. I've thrown all kinds of stuff in any different variety of colors. I really don't care. I'll pick the lure based on the size and is it bladed or is it skirted or, or what? They will eat. It doesn't matter. If it moves, they're going to eat it. Can they see it better if it's bright? Maybe. Depends on contrast. If it's bluebird skies outside and you're throwing a blue lure, they're probably going to miss it. If you're throwing something that's really dark and easy for them to see, then they're probably going to hit it more often than something they can't see. But I'm pretty certain that they're lateral line hunters. So if they sense a vibration in the water or something dangles right in front of them long enough, they kind of hone in on it like they have T-Rex vision. If it moves, they can see it. 
Do you think that the way that you're fishing for them majority of the time in the water, do you think that you are more strategically fishing them, whereas the topwater buzz baits, frogs, people burning the hell out of chatter baits, do you think that's more in line with maybe numbers, like like a numbers game, like throwing throwing a lure a hundred times and getting two bites in comparison to your maybe trying to strategically place something with your lure and throw 30 times and get two bites? Is that, does that seem a little bit like closer to what, what you're doing? So it sounds to me like you're describing more like bass fishing. Is it, are you finesse fishing or are you power fishing? Power fishing being we're moving every single structure and we're throwing as fast as possible, trying to get reaction strikes. So the fish that are out eating, we want those ones, right? The finesse is more like, I know there's a bed here. I know there's right, a yeah. fish here, right? Yeah. It's kind of the same idea with the snakeheads, but I, I call it, I, I tell people I don't go fishing. I go hunting fish. They give themselves away because they have to come up for air and they sit way back in the tree line and you'll just be sitting there fishing. It's dead quiet, you know, and all of a sudden the trees in front of you move and you're like, oh crap, what is that, you know? the fish is in there and they sit in the mud and then when something comes by or they get itchy or whatever, they move and, and shake all the mud off of them and go to a different spot. So the whole tree, three feet of tree will move right in front of you. So, you know, there's a fish there. Now it's a matter of how can I get my lure there? How can I get them to come out? Do I make a whole bunch of noise? Do I try and cast out on top of them? Do I throw into the trees and try and pull it quietly in front of them? It's all dependent on the, the way the fish is feeling. I've had days where, I go out there and I throw a lure right in front of a fish and they'll put their nose right on my lure and just look at me the whole time. And then as soon as I twitch, they run off. I've had days when I will throw and every time it hits the water, it seems like I'm going to catch a fish. And I've had other days where I throw and every time it hits the water, all the fish run away. So it's just depending on however they're feeling that day. They they eat anything, but they're super picky at the same time. It's kind of kind of weird to explain. But I go out there and when I fish... I throw a lot. I'll go out there with some of my buddies and they, they, they're like, Oh yeah, I'm a tournament fisherman. I do all this kind of stuff. And I cast a hundred times more than they do. And they're like, well, why are you sitting here in this spot? I'm like, I have a, I have a 10 to 15 minute rule. Like you pull up to a spot and the fish are not afraid of you. They will see you coming and they will move out of the way. And unless you like run them over they're they don't care that you're there. So I'll wait and let the water settle down. And then about 10 minutes later, they forget that you're there. And then they start to come out and eat again. But I, during that time, I'm fan casting. I call it a cone, basically, from your left shoulder to your right shoulder. Anything in that cone that, that you can reach in your kayak or boat, I fish all the way back and forth across until one of the fish gives himself away. Then I'll start pinpointing onto that fish. And then I give it 10 or 15 minutes. And if he doesn't want to bite, then we'll move on to the next spot. But like I said, I'm out there, and if I'm out in an eight-hour period, I'm probably casting 60, 70 times in an hour. So how often do these things surface for air? Like, what's the intermittent? What's the time frame? Um, that's a good question. I don't know the specific time, and I guess it depends on the fish. And I guess it depends on how deep they're, they're sitting in the water, but you can hear them. Um, you they come up and they they gasp for air like you can hear them suck in air um other times you'll hear them move a lot but i'd say every every few minutes 
you know, you'll, you'll hear one. So you sit there and you just be real quiet and let all the water settle down again. And all of a sudden the lily pads will start moving on your own. And you look over and you go, okay, well, there's a fish on this edge line. And you start fan casting other places so you don't spook that one until it comes up. And once they're up, they're more likely to eat, in my experience. Uh, there's always the unexpected, you know, you're, you're running something down the edge line and then it just blows up on it. Those are great. The open water blow-ups, those are fantastic. But you know a fish is there because everything is moving, and then you can kind of start planning on when you want to go for it based on when they start coming up for air. And sometimes you'll hear them just come up to try and eat other stuff. Do they? Does anybody use natural bait that that fishes for these things? Does anybody, oh, yeah. you know, throwing worms or minnows or whatever they'll? Oh yeah, um, the does the local people call them the snakehead destroyers, and they are, I guess, the scientific name of them is mummy chogs. They're little two to three inch bull minnows that you can find at most tackle shops. Um, that yep. seems to be the yep. go-to, but a lot of people will use whatever just drop a piece of chicken piece of hot dog doesn't matter if you see a lot of people if you're in the cambridge area over on the corsi bridge or new bridge or any of the people that are bank fishing you'll see a bunch of bobbers in the water and the, the go-to is to hook one of the minnows on a bobber with the about a four to six inch lead and just let it sit there until your line takes off so uh, the live lining for them is pretty common uh it's I call that old man fishing, though. Oh yeah, yeah for just, for sure. I but I just wondered if anybody like wanted to fill the freezer and just went out and, and sat around with some some minnows or something. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird because I didn't. I almost expected these fish to be so reactory that I, I figured you were going to tell me not necessarily no. But I that's really wild. I mean, the more I hear about these fish, the more it seems that these things are just. They're trying to be the most dominant fish out there. They're just they're trying to eat everything that they can. Oh yeah, they are mean. They uh, we say that the the fight doesn't stop until after you grill them because you you'll have one on the line and that's that's a good thirty percent of it. And then you got to get it into your boat or your kayak. So you got to have a net or it's not very big. You can kind of boat flip it. Then it hits the boat and it freaks out. And then you start dealing with it and you try and get the lure out of its mouth or whatever. And it's all calm for about 30 or 40 seconds. And as soon as the breeze blows again, then they flip out and try and jump out at you. I had one the other day where I was like, okay, well, you're too small. You're going to go back in the water. Dropped him in the water. And instead of going and diving in the water, he came back out of the water and hopped back in the kayak for a minute. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Apparently he wanted, wanted to go. <laughs> he, was not, he was not ready to go home. He was still wanted to fight me about it. He was upset. Um. So, how has uh obviously i interacted with you first through social media how has social media been a part of your business and how have you kind of helped grow your business with it well i um started with uh making a website just so we would have a platform to sell things off of then i made a facebook but i don't put a whole lot of stock in the facebook it's you know just a to have a page in case people want to message me and ask questions. But the real social media has been um, TikTok. TikTok has been pretty successful for me. So I would just make videos of saying, hey, we're making this color paddle sail today or we're making frogs for these buzz baits or whatever. And you start making friends. People will be like, oh, man, those are really cool. You know, will they catch bass? Sure will. You know, you start talking to them and they have like this whole community of 
the fishing community on TikTok. So you can get uh, to talk to people that are in the like professional bass fishing tours. They're on there. Uh, they have pro anglers and everybody's company and their pro staff. They're all on there. And it gives you a good platform just to, to talk to people and bounce ideas off of them. Or you make a video and somebody's like, hey, man, that's really cool. This is how I do mine. And you go, okay, that's cool. So you add this extra thing in there. Okay, that's. Then you start to kind of go back and forth and exchange ideas. But I, uh, I've i been pretty lucky. I'll just do like a live video you know, when I'm hanging out making lures and stuff. Some people will come by and then I'll be like, yeah, this is the new one I'm working on. They're like, oh, man, that's really cool. I want to I wanna buy 15 of them. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you, I'll send you two and see if you like them. And then if you catch a bunch of fish on them, send me the pictures. I'll send you some more. And they're like, okay, great. So um, I've had a lot of website sales. If you look at the, you know, every website wants to give you their information about how they're helping you. So if you go in there and you can see the amount of referrals from TikTok versus Facebook versus Instagram. But yeah, TikTok's been really good for me. And then for outreach from like other companies, I feel like Instagram is a bit more established. So uh, when you want to talk to another company, like for example, if I wanted to talk to my friend who I met um, through Instagram and through the, the regular like local fishing expos and stuff, but uh, my buddy Andrew owns Tactical Fishing Company. So he was like, oh yeah, have me on Instagram and we'll talk. And then we started going fishing together after that because he lives like an hour away. So it's not too far, but yeah, you, social media makes things a lot smaller and it also gives you a lot more access to information. So if you are wondering on, Oh, well, how do I make an inline spinner? What, what kind of tools do I need? Go on YouTube. Somebody will have a video on how to do it. Now you can maybe, you know, make it a little bit your own, but, uh, yeah, you can learn pretty much anything nowadays, which is pretty nice. I don't have to rely on asking my dad a thousand questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I think I've learned, I've learned about everything I've done except for the lighting system I just made for my kayak which I did engineer myself, kind of proud of that. But other than that, everything I've done I, for the podcast, for whatever it may be, even social media use of, I'm just on YouTube looking things up, trying to learn things. So, mm-hmm. uh, But yeah, it, it seems TikTok is the way to go. And I am a, I'm kind of like a outdoorsy person. I'm, I'm not super social media savvy off the jump. So I, I had to be really, uh, in tune with YouTube and, and stuff like that and watch what a lot of people were doing to to kind of grow this any because I, I just wasn't um, I wasn't prepared for it when I started all this. But so before we hop off, I want to uh, I just wanted to kind of ask you, has there been any fishing you've been doing this this year or anything you're going to be doing this year you're pumped up for or any stories from the recent years? Anything cool? Um, We got a lot of I don't fish regular fishing tournaments and then the, the reason for that is because i own my own fishing company i feel like my job is to more like sponsor these things give people lures for like prize pools and stuff like that i don't really need to be jumping in there and being like a look at me this is my fishing lures type of person you know um but there are a couple of charity tournaments that we are kind of sponsoring there so on the 23rd is the saint baldrick's fishing tournament and that is going to be snakehead bass and catfish. So we donated about 20 lures to them, and we've done some fundraising in between Andrew and I from Tactical Fishing Company. We've put together, I believe, about $500, and we sent that directly to the charity. So we need anglers for that one to sign up. It's $50, but you can fish all three of those tournaments um, 
for a little bit more money, but all your money goes directly to the charity. So that's one of the things we're looking forward to. Um, we had a really good turnout at some of the fishing expos. I was not really prepared. You know, I asked some other guys that make fishing lures, you know, how many, how many of these baits should I bring? You know, they're like, oh, 10 of everything. I was like, well, I got three of everything. So that's what we're bringing and sold out of everything on the first day. So that was a good feeling. Um, but it definitely made me more prepared for the next one. So I kind of took that money, reinvested it in uh, being able to make a bunch more stuff and it's kind of snowballed from there. So we've gotten into a couple of tackle shops. I'm actually working on an order for a third tackle shop to be delivered on Saturday. So that'll put us in three locations. But uh, my goal for this year is to get into five tackle shops and kind of spread them out throughout the state. Maybe go to Delaware, maybe put one in New Jersey, either way. But uh, you know, five is the goal and we're more than halfway there. So I'm, I'm pretty excited for, for what's going on so far. Yeah. It sounds like you got a lot of good stuff going on and, uh, it's cool to see your growth, you know, watch you through social media. Um, I love when you, you put the post up of the new lures because I think the post, not only the post well done and appealing, I, I think it's just cool to see what you're coming up with or what variations you're coming up with, you know, every time you do. Well, thank you. Yeah, I try and make things a little bit different. I've always been a little bit different. I go to archery competitions wearing my Metallica t-shirt and everybody else is wearing their PSE stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, we are a, uh, we are a Metallica podcast here. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm kind of the same way. I've noticed a lot, uh, talking to people and, and stuff for the podcast that I'm not necessarily the same as others. And that's, that's not, uh, that's not terribly a bad thing. Um, no, it is not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, you know what I've learned, too? And I, I'm not going to go on a rant because it's your podcast. But one thing I've learned, too, is the more people I meet, the more uh, the more people I seem to connect with on levels I didn't realize. And it's because most people put up a front for this outdoorsy, you know, red first, uh, this, 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 you know, um, Christi Christian, you know, the outdoor world. And it, it always, there was this front on TV that everybody was very proper and prim. And uh, what I've realized talking to so many people on a podcast that I started because I didn't like the media in other places was most people don't, don't really act the way that, uh, you know, that shield on TV that, that uh, everybody kind of holding everything back, uh, the censorship people aren't really like that. You know, I, I think it's cool that, you know, you just admitted that you're not normal. You're not, you're not your normal typical because I think at least 50% of the crowd isn't normal typical. It's just that everybody portrays this, you know what I mean? They kind of portray something. Right. But not, yeah, not I to like rank. To, I like to show up to do uh show up to do redneck stuff while listening to death metal and wearing all black and then outfish everybody. That's <laughs> That's Dude, you you should talk to Chris over at 3B Outdoors because he was literally in a heavy rock band and he sits down with he's gonna sit down with me. Uh this will drop next Wednesday. It is currently the seventh. He'll be here the fifteenth in studio with the three B guys, and they'll be here. So uh yeah, he's he's a big like metalhead and it's it's cool. It's cool to see um kind of see the difference, man. It it's always been growing up that I wasn't like other, 
I, you know, I'm an outdoorsman to the core. I, I spend so much time in the mountain by myself, solo hunting deer, turkeys. I'm duck hunting. I'm fishing, whatever the case may be, saltwater, freshwater. And I did everything kind of to my own tune. And now that I've got to meet people just like you, it's been really, it's been really cool, man. It's super cool that you came on. I'm glad you did because I just learned a bunch today about snakehead. I learned a bunch about lures. I did not know they surfaced a bunch for air. I don't know why I thought that they walked across land and went to the deli in Glen Burnie and bought chicken cheesesteaks. I didn't, I didn't even put two and two together that these things came up for air. Obviously they do if, if they can come out of the water. So I'm an idiot, but I, but now I've learned and I think that's really cool. Um, but yeah, I've, I've learned a ton today and I really appreciate you being on and I'm sure everyone else is going to appreciate hearing everything you had to say because it's all legitimate. Snakehead fishing might be the biggest thing in Maryland, the biggest growing thing in Maryland right now. And I think you hit the nail on the head for everything. So I appreciate it. All right. Well, I appreciate you having me on and you just, uh, let me know if you have any other questions or you want to go fishing. I'll show you where they're at. All right, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, talk to you later. All right, have a good one. That's it.